It's time to name names. These are the pastors and Christian leaders who wear pro-life like sheep's clothing to hide the wolf inside. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Welcome to the show today, guys. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, please give the show a rating and review if you haven't done that already. Uh, tell us what you think. Hit five stars. It actually really helps. The show continues to grow. We're very grateful for that um, as this season is so important for normal individuals, common sense people, and Christians to begin standing for life, for liberty, for righteousness, um, and turn this country around. But of course, as I always tell you, nearly every issue we're facing goes back to our failure to protect the preborn in the womb. Um, our apathy towards abortion um, is the litmus test of our apathy toward everything else. If we tolerate that, we'll tolerate everything else. And yet it should be the church and pastors who are the ones not tolerating evil, right? Um, who are seeking the good of the city where they're in exile. For in her welfare, the city's welfare, you will find your welfare, loving their neighbors, contending for godly legislation and ideas upstream um, so that human havoc is not wrecked downstream, right? This is called a social fabric. This is called a, a, a healthy culture contending in the public square um, through ministries, through relationships, through politics uh, to love neighbors. And yet that type of um, contending for truth seems to be lost on these pastors and, and quote-unquote Christian leaders that we're going to go over. This will probably be a pretty controversial episode. I'll probably get some heat from it, but I want you to listen to it. I want you to share it. I want you to challenge people that you know who love and look up to some of these men um, who I think are wearing pro-life like sheep's clothing to hide the wolf inside, who pay lip service to pro-life um, in order to continue getting the support and tithing of people are, who are pro-life, um, but who continue to empower the very political administrations and individuals who lynch their neighbors in the womb, all right? And so apparently the blood of unborn children doesn't run deep enough or hot enough to warrant these men's political intervention and speaking up. So I want to start with Tim Keller. I'll, I'll, I'll try to do this quickly because I, we did an episode a couple years ago called What Pastor Tim Keller and Ruth Bader Ginsburg have in common. You can go back and listen to that if you'd like. And I mentioned Tim Keller in my public speaking and in the podcast sometimes to make this point about he's sort of a stand-in for the rot in American evangelicalism, the men who espouse pro-life beliefs but do absolutely nothing to protect the pre-born, and in some cases actually tell Christians, you can go and vote for the people who are lynching your neighbors in the womb, who would have lynched your savior when he was in Mary's uterus. It's totally fine. God doesn't care if you support those people. Uh, and so I want to start with Tim Keller. I'll try to do it quickly because you probably heard my spiel on him before before, my shtick on him before, but I think it's actually important to start with him. I mean, he started the Gospel Coalition, right? Uh, he's been called the C.S. Lewis of the 21st century, um, and, and yet um, he has been doing more to advance wokeness and quote-unquote social justice uh, than real justice. Uh, and what is more unjust than the genocide of baby image bearers happening in our country, uh, for whom one of the most dangerous states to live in is New York, right, is Manhattan, where Pastor Tim has, has been a senior pastor for, for decades. And so he wrote this, this piece in 1999 in, in um, Christianity Today. We have a screenshot of it here if you're watching the show. It's called Religionless Spirituality. And in this, in this piece, it's very, very important. I want you to go look it up and read it. I think you have to get a, unfortunately, I think you have to get a membership to Christianity Today, which I normally wouldn't encourage. <laughs> but he, he explains in an aside in this article 
why it's good to not preach on abortion from the pulpit. Why, why, why pastors should not preach on abortion from the pulpit. Okay, pr pretty gnarly. Here's what he says. He says, we will be careful with the order in which we communicate the parts of the faith. Pushing moral behaviors before we lift up Christ is religion. Listen to that. Pushing moral behaviors before we lift up Christ is religion. The church today is calling people of God. By the way, that, that is a complete divorce from the Old Testament, right? The, the, the law is pushing moral behaviors as a way to lift up God, as a way to honor God. And he's saying that if you ever talk about moral behaviors or the moral law, right, throughout the Old Testament, um, before lifting up Christ, then, then you're sinning. He, he, obviously, he's assuming you can't be doing both in tandem. He says the church today is calling people to God with a tone of voice that seems to confirm their worst fears. Religion has always been outside in. If I behave out here in all these ways, then I will have God's blessing and love inside. But the gospel is inside out. If I know the blessing and grace of God inside, then I can, be, I can behave out here in all these ways. And, here's, and now here's where it gets troublesome. He says, a woman who had been attending our church for several months came to see me. Do you think abortion is wrong? She asked me. I said that I did. She said, I'm coming now to see that maybe there is something wrong with it. Now that I've become a Christian here and have started studying the faith in the classes. All right, so this woman got saved at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, where Pastor Tim Keller was senior pastor for decades, and, and she had never heard Tim preach on abortion from the pulpit. She starts to have her mind changed and, and says, now that I'm sort of a Christian, I'm starting to see that. Keller says, as we spoke, I discovered that she was an Ivy League graduate, a lawyer, a longtime Manhattan resident, and an active member of the ACLU, one of the greatest legal enemies to unborn children. That's my ad. She volunteered that she had experienced three abortions. L listen to what Pastor Tim Keller, how he describes abortion. She had experienced three abortions. No, 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 no. Three of her babies experienced abortions, abortions which she paid someone to perform on her children. So he's already participating in sort of the euphemistic bigotry of the culture of death that she had experienced three. That's so freaking disgusting way to say that. You know, can you imagine using that type of language in sort of in any other injustice? Like, like, uh, yeah, that that plantation owner. Yeah, he experienced slavery. No, the slaves are the ones being enslaved and he's the one profiting off of it, benefiting from the slavery. So already I think his bigotry is coming out. I want you to know, she said, that if I had seen any literature or reference to the pro-life movement, I would not have stayed through the first service. But I did stay, and I found faith in Christ. If abortion is wrong, you should certainly speak out against it, but I'm glad about the order in which you do it. So this is what this woman's telling Pastor Tim Keller, and Ta Pastor Tim is using this as an example in this article for how churches and pastors should, should, should address the issue of abortion. He's saying, wow, look at this. If I had preached it from the pulpit, she would have left. So therefore, for the sake of evangelism, don't talk about abortion from the pulpit because you'll turn people away, right? Keller says, this woman had her faith incubated into birth in our Sunday services. In worship, we center on the question, what is truth? And the one who had the audacity to say, I am the truth. This is the big issue for postmodern people, and it's hard to swallow. Nothing is more subversive and prophetic than to say, truth has become a real person. Jesus calls both younger brothers and elder brothers to come into the Father's arms. He calls the church to grasp the gospel for ourselves and share it with those who are desperately seeking true spirituality. We of all people ought to understand and agree with fears about religion, for Jesus himself warned us to be wary of it and not to mistake a call for moral virtue for the good news of God's salvation provided in Christ. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah, you could get wrapped up in sort of just obeying moral codes, 
um, and how good you are at being a good person by doing so, but forgetting the height from which you have fallen, forgetting who saved you from your sin, and recognizing that your identity is found in Christ and not in moral behaviors. Sure, all of that's fine, but, but per the usual, Tim Keller takes basic truths that we all agree with and uses those as premises to reach a conclusion that does not follow from those premises. But it's easy to make your argument that way when virtually no one disagrees with your original premises. But then you reach your conclusion and we, go, we all go, what the heck? How did you get there, Tim? Right? So he's saying the gospel is essential. Right? Evangelism is our first priority. The Great Commission is what we're called to. We're called to preach Christ and lift him up and not push moral behaviors. Therefore, preaching on abortion is pushing moral behaviors. So don't do that at all. Don't mention it from the pulpit. Because had I done that, says Keller, this ACLU member lawyer radical leftist would have come to church, heard me saying that that abortion is the genocide of baby image bearers, and at our church we contend against the sacrament of Satan to save babies, and she would have never come back to our church, and therefore she would have never become a Christian. You know, see what Pastor Tim is doing here? He's saying, I'm the one responsible to contrive the situation in which conviction of sin is brought. I have to make sure that the political, social, and moral climate is tuned to the right temperature that no one is unnecessarily offended and doesn't come back to my church. No, that was never your responsibility. Your responsibility was to preach truth. Graciously, yes, but to preach truth nonetheless and leave the results to God. If If the standard is don't say or preach anything that is offensive to the point that it drives someone away, then why would Tim Keller have ever talked about Black Lives Matter and systemic racism? He adopted premises of Black Lives Matter, right, that there's systemic racism in our country, that black men are being hunted down, right, and we have to address these political issues as the church. Guess what? That turned off a lot of conservatives at his church who understand and have actually read Thomas Sowell and others and know that there's not systemic racism through every institution, And that that's just a line the left uses to create a crisis to consolidate political control and blast their political opponents as virulent racists. He turned off people who left, and maybe they were rock-ribbed Republican conservatives, but they weren't Christians, and they left his church because he preached on that. Is he applying that example as a way in which pushing moral behaviors turns people away, and therefore they don't hear the, the saving message of Christ? No, he's not. He's only applying it to abortion because his church is in Manhattan, where there's more Democrats there than virtually anywhere else in the country. And he knows where the majority of his tithing come from. (laughs) Okay. How's that for a word? Let's just be honest about what's really happening here. Disgusting, right? Of course, by those same standards, Christian churches and pastors should not have condemned the institution of slavery and those involved in it, because then you'd be pushing moral behaviors on slave owners before lifting up Christ. Right, Pastor Tim? You can't do that, right? If you lived in 1850s, Pastor Tim, and you had a church in a, in a, in a you know, slavery-ridden Democrat state, you can't preach out against that. You're pushing moral behaviors, right? You, you, you'd be pushing moral behaviors to come out against the lynching of babies in the womb in 2020, and, and then you would have been pushing moral behaviors to come out against the lynching of born black people then, and then you'd be turning away slave owners and plantation owners who would have otherwise been open to hearing the gospel, and then after they got saved, maybe their heart would be warm to moral behaviors, and they'd stop whipping people that they treat like property. But you can't say that from the pulpit, right, because then you'd be pushing moral behaviors, Pastor Tim. Absolutely disgusting. So um, th- that's, that's sort of the first, the first problem here, and, and this has become very indicative of Pastor Tim's approach to sort of moral issues or those, or those moral and spiritual issues 
that have been politicized. So according to Pastor Tim Keller, clerical silence in the face of child sacrifice is an acceptable means of evangelism. It's totally acceptable. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll let the babies continue to be lynched and sacrificed. Um, but, I'm, but don't worry, I, I'm doing that because I care so much about the gospel, because I want people to hear the gospel. So uh, we won't use the massive influence of our church, my pulpit, and my platform to help end this genocide. Um, but don't worry, I, I definitely would have been using my influence in pulpit to end slavery then. And he's written in prior articles about how he would have been so politically involved in 1850. It's pretty disgusting. Um, secondly, Tim Keller admits that he is a registered Democrat. I won't go into this piece. We have a screenshot here, though. He's admitted he, he penned a piece in 2020 after backlash to a Facebook post he made, which I'm about to cover, where he, he admits he's a registered Democrat. He tries to justify it. He says it, it's smart voting because, you know, it's New York is so blue. I couldn't have a difference as a Republican. So therefore, I'll, I'll, um, I'll disobey God by supporting and condoning evil politicians um, it, it, rather than opening my Bible at the ballot box because, you know, that's just smart voting. And then, of course, there's this piece from Facebook um, that he did in September of 2020 where he said Christians have liberty of conscience to vote for whoever they want. Um, I won't read the whole thing, but basically what he says in this piece, he says that the Bible tells me that abortion is a sin and a great evil, but it doesn't tell me the best way to decrease or end abortions in this country or which policies are most effective. This means when it comes to voting, taking political positions, and determining alliances, the Christian has liberty of conscience, liberty of conscience to vote however you want. God doesn't care about your vote. However your conscience leads you, it's totally fine. Forget the Bible verses that said the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it? No, not one does good. No one. No one seeks God. No, but you can actually trust your conscience now. It's not fallen. You don't have a sin nature. And if you feel okay about voting for pro-abortion Democrats that lynch babies in the womb, you know that then that's between you and God, says Tim Keller. And then he finishes by saying that Christians can't say to other Christians how they can or cannot vote. Like you, you can't tell another Christian, you have to vote for this person or you can't vote for this person. So that's what he says. So according to Keller's reasoning, supporting the Democrat Party of the 1850s would have been acceptable for some Christians because the Bible doesn't tell us which policies are most effective in decreasing or ending slavery. There's not a policy prescription for ending slavery in the Bible. So you have liberty of conscience to vote for Stephen Douglas, who ran against Abraham Lincoln, who was a racist and who wanted to uphold the institution of slavery. It's totally fine. Oh, also supporting Hitler and his regime must have been acceptable to some German Christians in the 1940s because remember, Christians have liberty of conscience, end quote, uh, Tim Keller. That's what he says. But if Keller rejects these suggestions as permissible for the Christian, which I guarantee you he does, but he is indeed pro-life, then his own argument is rendered false. Why? Because abortion is wrong for the same reason that slavery and the Holocaust are wrong. In each case, they legally denied rights of personhood to image bearers of God while dehumanizing them in order to justify their mistreatment. In short, Keller believes that clerical pastoral silence in the face of child sacrifice is an acceptable means of evangelism or of, of reaching the least of these. Forget the Bible verses that say that pure and undefiled religion is to care for orphans and widows in their distress. Why? Because the orphan's life is endangered because his parents are dead. Well, the unborn is an orphan because his life is endangered, endangered because his parents want him dead. The orphan in the womb, his life is far more endangered than the orphan outside the womb whose parents are dead because the orphan in the womb has parents who want him dead, one or both parents. <laughs> Forget about those verses, apparently, to Tim Keller. It, it, unreal, it's just pure and undefiled religion is to preach the gospel, according to Tim Keller, not to do anything to actually love your neighbors. And of course, our unborn neighbors are the only neighbor that it's legal to kill. And then Keller says, you know, I challenge Christians to show me where the Bible tells us who we can and cannot vote for. 
Um, well, the Bible does tell us to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. It does tell us to hold back those staggering toward the slaughter. So how should we do that? How should we speak up for those who can't speak for themselves and hold back the unborn who are staggering toward slaughter? How about making it illegal to slaughter them? That Wouldn't that be a great way to love a neighbor that it's legal to kill, to make it illegal to kill them? How do you make it illegal to kill a neighbor that it's legal to kill, Pastor Tim? Oh, yeah, you pass laws to protect them. Oh, that means using politics. Oh, but you say we can't do that because that, that's pushing moral behaviors before lifting up Christ. Absolutely disgusting, right? So back to whether you can tell people who to vote or not vote for, right? The Bible also tells us that whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin, oh, right? Whoever knows the right thing to do, it's in James, and fails to do it, for him it is sin. If we have the ability to use our power and voice to end the genocide of abortion, the genocide of innocence, we should do that. That's a duh. That is the right thing to do. If we're commanded to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, but we refuse to use the only voice we have, our political voice, that could actually end the genocide in the first place, then we are in sin. If we have the ability, we can end the genocide of babies, but we refuse to do so, then we are in sin. For we know the right thing to do and we fail to do it. And anyone who tells you otherwise, simply ask them if they would defend not using their political voice to help end slavery in 1850. And everyone would suddenly say they would use their political voice to help end slavery in 1850 because it's politically acceptable to be against slavery, but it's not politically acceptable to be against abortion. But it goes without saying that there's only one political party, right, that will allow Christians to accomplish that best way to love their preborn neighbors, to make it illegal to kill them. The imperfect GOP, the imperfect Republican Party that will allow us the only opportunity to end abortion. So yes, Pastor Tim, the Bible does allow us to tell our brothers and sisters who to vote for and who not to vote for. However, Keller has written elsewhere that it was wrong for Christians to refuse to be political in the 19th century on the issue of slavery. You heard that right. He says it's wrong to be political on abortion, right? You shouldn't be doing that, right? Because God doesn't care about your vote. You have liberty of conscience and you shouldn't be telling other brothers and sisters how to vote. However, he suddenly tells us how we should have voted if we had lived in 1850. This New York Times piece called How Do Christians Fit Into a Two-Party System? They Don't from September 2018 Keller says the following. He says, Christians cannot pretend they can transcend politics and simply preach the gospel. <laughs> Isn't that wild? Uh, those who avoid all political discussions and engagement are essentially casting a vote for the social status quo. Did you hear that? Those who avoid politics and political engagement are casting a vote for the status quo. American churches in the early 19th century that did not speak out against slavery because that was what we would now call getting political, we're actually supporting slavery by doing so. To not be political is to be political. End quote, Tim Keller. So what's he saying? He's saying that churches who were apolitical, and I don't, I'm, I'm not political, in 1850, that silence was not just complicity, it was approval. They were supporting slavery by doing so because pretending to not be political was being political. Now do abortion, Tim. Now do abortion. Tim Keller cannot pretend to transcend politics and simply preach the gospel. Those who avoid all political discussions and engagement are essentially casting a vote for the social status quo. When pastors like Tim Keller don't speak out against slavery or, or abortion because that is called getting political, he is actually supporting abortion by doing so. To not be political is to be political. Look at that. I just quoted Tim Keller back to Tim Keller with his same words, and I put in the word abortion instead of slavery. But he doesn't accept that, does he? He says you have liberty of conscience to vote for pro-abortion Democrats, but you didn't have liberty of conscience to vote for pro-slavery Democrats. 
but the blood of unborn children has never run deep enough or hot enough to warrant Keller's intervention. But the mistreatment of black Americans um, that doesn't end in tearing their limbs off definitely warrants him speaking out. In the New York Times article, he says, racism is a sin, violating the second of the two greatest commandments of Jesus to love your neighbor. The biblical commands to lift up the poor and defend the rights of the oppressed are moral imperatives for believers. For individual Christians to speak out against egregious violations of these moral requirements is not optional, meaning you have to do it. So if being politically neutral in the 1850s was supporting slavery, then obviously supporting slavery was supporting slavery. Supporting Democrats in the 1850, the party of slavery, would have been supporting slavery. So if being politically neutral in the 1850s is sin, then obviously voting for Democrats in the 1850s is a greater sin. But he won't say that voting for Democrats today is a sin, even though they believe the same thing that their 1850 Democrat forebears believed, which is not all humans are persons. Today's Democrat Party has just found a new victim class that they say is a human non-person, pre-born children. And they use the same arguments to justify lynching the unborn as they did to lynching the black man. But you see, the blood of unborn children doesn't bother Tim enough. In August of 2017, uh, Keller preached a message available at Desiring God, and we have a screenshot here, entitled Racism and Corporate Evil. And he points to examples of systemic evil or injustice, and then makes the case that whether you're responsible for the system of injustice or not, you have a responsibility as a Christian to engage and help fight it or end it. And then at a 2016 conference on a panel, Keller said that having white skin makes you involved in injustice, even if you didn't actually do anything. And we'll play this clip right now. And if you have that asset of white skin right now, historical asset, then you actually have to say, I, I didn't deserve this. And also, I'm to some degree, I'm the product of uh, I'm standing on the shoulders of other people who got that through injustice. So uh, the Bible actually says, yes, you do, you do, you are um, involved in injustice. And even if you didn't actually do it, therefore you have a responsibility, not just to say, well, you know, maybe if I get around to it, maybe we could do something about the poor people out there. No, you're, you're part of the problem. If you do actually let your, your understanding of responsibility be shaped by the Bible instead of American individualism. Isn't that interesting? So he says, the Bible says, yes, you do. You are involved in injustice. And even if you didn't actually do it, you still have a responsibility. So according to Pastor Tim Keller, we're involved in injustice by being silent and apolitical on the issue of racism. But, but we're not involved in injustice if we're silent and apolitical on the genocide of black people. So you're involved in injustice and you're involved in racism even if you didn't contribute to racism. And what are his examples of racism today? I don't know, like over-incarceration, he says, right? Or, or white cops just shooting, just shooting black men. Like LeBron James says, we just walk out of our house and we're being hunted down. So you're involved in that injustice if you're silent and apolitical on racism today in America, which is uh, never ends in the lynching of black people. But, but according to Pastor Jim Keller, you're not involved in injustice if you're silent on the genocide of black people in the womb. That's totally fine. In fact, in fact, remember September 2020, remember what he say? You have liberty of conscience to vote for whoever you want. God doesn't care. Wow, something tells me that Tim Keller is a bigot. That the, the pre-born to him is not intrinsically valuable, valuable enough to warrant political protection. So there, there's Tim Keller, okay? He, he, he puts on pro-life like sheep's clothing to hide the wolf inside. What about Ed Stetzer? Ed Stetzer is, the, uh, is at Wheaton College, okay? He's the dean, I think. 
He's the executive director of the Billy Graham Center. He's the editor-in-chief of Outreach Media. He was previously an editor at Christianity Today, and he was the executive director of Lifeway. Remember Lifeway Books? Okay, Ed Stetzer is essentially a Christian Marxist. Uh, he also pays lip service to pro-life but does nothing to stop it. Um, I won't spend too much time on him here, but, but here is a, a tweet that he retweeted a few years ago. Um, okay, so any, for you know, older listeners to, to the show, uh, you know, you're retweeting, you're sharing someone else's tweet on Twitter to, because you like whatever they're saying, right? You're retweeting it. So here's what, here was the retweet. He, it's honestly very confusing to me that conservatives can see absolutely nothing beyond abortion. That's what he retweeted, Ed Stetzer. So he's saying, yeah, these stupid conservatives, they're such single-issue voters. They're so obsessed with abortion. Why can't they see beyond that? Well, this shouldn't surprise you because Ed Stetzer loves to rub shoulders with Democrats, and he loves to support Democrats, and he loves to provide his platform and influence to push the agendas of radical Democrats. Uh, and, and so, of course, for him, uh, the preborn is just, they're just one victim among many. Abortion is just one issue among many. And we have to weigh all of these issues on, a, on sort of a similar playing field. And so for Ed Stetzer, as I think you'll come to see, the, the preborn, you know, they, they, they go way down on the scales. And every other sort of secular progressive priority uh, goes up on the scales. Uh, he wrote a USA Today article in June 2021. We have a screenshot of it here. And the tagline, the, like the mini description under the main headline, says this. If you love your neighbor, you have to get the vaccine. If you love your neighbor, you have to get the vaccine. So you're a bad Christian if you don't, right? You're a bad neighbor, you're a bad Christian, and you don't love your neighbor if you don't get the jab. Uh, you mean a vaccine that was developed and in some cases, uh, I'm sorry, was tested in every circumstance and in some circumstances developed with aborted baby cell lines, raiding the bodies of aborted children and using their dead cells that have been immortalized through aborted baby cell lines uh, to, to advance our own lives and extend our own lives? You mean Christians who have, more, have a moral conscience and don't want to participate in that? That they're a bad Christian, they don't love their neighbor? Yes, that, that's Ed Stetzer for you. But see, he cloaks it all in Christianese, right? So he sounds very moderate. Um, while at Wheaton, he's still there, Ed Stetzer sided with pro-choice students who were triggered and offended by pro-life speaker Ryan Bomberger's speech. Ryan Bomberger is a wonderful um, black brother, pro-life strong voice against critical race theory and abortion. And he spoke at Wheaton uh, on sort of racism and abortion, right, and all these things. And all the students, some of the students were super triggered and they were calling for safe spaces, classic, right? Uh, Wheaton is sort of the Westmont of the East Coast, by the way, horrible college. And speaking of Ryan and what happened here, here's what Stetzer said. He said, if disagreement is unsafe, then Wheaton is unsafe. If you don't like people challenging your ideas when you are intellectually provocative, this is not the place to come and speak. You probably thought that, that I was talking about him talking about students, but no, he's talking about the speaker, right? He's saying, if you didn't like the pushback from students calling you a racist, right? Or what the, what the, the LA Times called Larry Elder, the, the black face of white supremacy. If you didn't like what they were saying to you, uh, then you shouldn't come and speak here, right? Then he said, you see, we debate ideas here at Wheaton, and our students felt that some of Bomberger's comments after the talk were unhelpful and dismissive. Not about abortion, but about other issues of concern to them. Honestly, I would not have used the charged word safe that the students used in that email, but it does convey the kind of place we want Wheaton to be, a safe place <laughs> to debate ideas and a safe place for people of color. Well, not people of color in the womb, 
who Ryan Baumberger was there to speak on behalf of. <laughs> if you speak on behalf of colored people in the womb and you offend colored people outside of the womb, then the dean of Wheaton College, Ed Stetzer, will go and provide cover for the pro-choice-triggered students while demonizing the pro-life group and the pro-life speaker for challenging his students' bigotry. He should have come out and said, these pro-choice students will be will begin a process of being discipled at our college to make sure that they're not pro-choice bigots who want to lynch God's image bearers in the womb because that's not acceptable at a Christian college. No, no, no. He provides cover for the pro-choice students. And then lastly, Ed Stetzer, along with some of the other people we're going to cover, have a strange crush and fascination with Francis Collins. Francis Collins was the former NIH director, okay, the National Institutes of Health, says he's a Christian, and then all of these sort of, you know, progressive Christian pastors and leaders teamed up with Francis Collins and gave them his plat gave them their platform to push COVID propaganda and advice for churches on whether they should reopen or not. Ed Stetzer has a podcast called Church Leadership. And in September of 2021, he brought Francis Collins on to discuss why good Christians who actually love their neighbors have to get jabbed. And he praised Francis Collins saying, quote, you know how thankful I am for you. You know how thankful I am for you. So, guys, do you want to know um, what Ed Stetzer is thankful for? I mean, he's, he just told us that he's thankful for Francis Collins, right? So he's, for, he's, he's thankful for all of France, for, for what Francis Collins does, right? He's not thankful for Francis Collins because he's just a really good conversationalist over a cup of joe. No, he's grateful for Francis Collins. Why? Because of what he does at the NIH. What does Francis Collins do at the NIH, Seth? Let me tell you. Well, he says he's a professing Christian, Francis Collins says. He says he's a professing Christian and he's pro-life. Oh, except that he funds the mastectomies of healthy 13-year-old girls for studies at the NIH, girls who think they're boys, and he funds chopping up their, off their boobs um, to help them feel like boys. And that funding came through NIH. What a great Christian. He's also recruited teen boys to track their homosexual activities for studies at the NIH. So that's money that was put behind a study to encourage teen boys to report their homosexual sodomite activity. What a great Christian Francis Collins is, right, guys? I can see why Ed Stetzer is so thankful for him. Um, let's see. Oh, he also supports and has defended unrestricting, unrestricted funding for embryonic stem cell research. When you murder babies in the womb to get their stem cells to try to use it to solve diseases for born people. So the baby becomes a sacrifice on man's pursuit for eternal life. What a great Christian Francis Collins is, right, guys? Oh, and Francis Collins, he's also what? Uh, um, oh, he's directed record-level funding to experimenting on aborted babies, some of whom were old enough to survive outside the womb had they been delivered alive and cared by heroic doctors in a neonatal unit. What a great Christian, pro-life Christian Francis Collins is. That's who Ed Stetzer is grateful for. Oh, and lastly, Francis Collins has defended eugenic abortions. We have a screenshot from this interview and article. You can go find it. It was in an interview with belief.net. And he was asked this, Collins, in some ways, it seems it's already happening. For example, sometimes when parents learn that their children has Down syndrome, they terminate the pregnancy. What is your opinion on that sort of scenario? What? So Francis Collins was just asked, what's your opinion on eugenic abortions, the intentional elimination of those that the society deems unfit to live, who are not chromosomally perfect and have Down syndrome? Here is Francis Collins' answer. Quote, I'm troubled that the applications of genetics that are currently possible are oftentimes in the prenatal area. That is not the reasons I went into the field. The reason I went into this field was to figure out how to treat illnesses rather than try to stop individuals from even being born. But, anytime someone says but, they're about to negate everything they just said. But of course, in our current society, people are in a circumstance of being able to take advantage of those technologies 
And we have decided as a society that that choice needs to be defended. Take advantage of what technologies, Francis Collins? Oh, yeah, the testing of babies in the womb before they're born to make sure they're chromosomally perfect. And if they're not chromosomally perfect, they'll have their limbs ripped off of their body and you will fund those. Oh, right. And we've, we've decided that that choice needs to be defended. Have we, Collins? You Christian, you wolf in sheep's clothing. This is who Ed Stetzer gives a platform to, guys, and says he's very grateful for. What about Russell Moore? Russell Moore also has a strange crush on Francis Collins. Francis Collins said when um, his publicly said this in a tweet, that we have here for you. He said, I admire greatly the wisdom, expertise, and most of all, the Christian humility and grace of Francis Collins. I cannot wait to see how God uses him next. Yeah, maybe he'll chop up some more 12-year-old boobs, huh? Maybe he'll encourage some more teen or teenage boys to have butt sex and, and, and log their experiences online. Maybe he'll murder some more babies in the womb, chop up their bodies and get their stem cells. I can't wait to see how God uses Francis Collins next, says, says Russell Moore. Russell Moore, formerly... Uh, with Southern Baptist Convention and um, sort of their political action arm over there, um, and now at Christianity Today. Well, here we have a screenshot here. Russell Moore admits that he used to campaign for Democrats in Mississippi and once said that he wished his wife was more like Hillary Clinton. He, he literally says in this piece here that he, that he wished his wife was more like Hillary Clinton. Uh, let me see if I, if I have the, the quote from here from this article. Uh, incredibly disturbing. Um, he um, he explains how he was a staffer um, for a Democrat congressman um, in in Mississippi, and how when he started dating his wife and found that she was a Republican, she was very concerned. He said, um, even after I agreed to let my cousin introduce us to his wife, I almost stopped it. On our first date, I almost turned around in her driveway when I saw the Bush 92 sign in the yard. I was campaigning all over South Mississippi for a Democrat congressman, and I was going out with a Republican? More than that, I was worried she was too quiet, as I explained it to my cousin. Too gentle for the rough world of politics where I was planned to live my life and career. I had illusions that I was going to be the governor of Mississippi one day, and I needed a wife who had the fire in the belly to speak on the campaign, pressure donors to give more, and attack back at political opponents. This is on Russell Moore's website, guys. She, he says, I needed a partner who was a Mississippi version of Hillary Clinton, I guess I was thinking. <laughs> Hillary Clinton, one of the most pro-abortion politicians in American history, who was BFFs with the president of Planned Parenthood, Cecile Richards. There you go. That's Russell Moore. Russell Moore also helped appoint someone named Thomas Kidd to the ERLC where he served. He was a research fellow, and Thomas Kidd claimed that evangelicals who support Donald Trump are anti-immigrant and racist. And a couple years ago, Thomas Kidd went out of his way to tell people that it was okay to vote for pro-abortion uh, proponents. Here's what he said. He said, I am okay with just about any voting choice that traditional believers make in this dismal situation. Thomas Kidd said at the ERLC, uh, who was appointed and approved by Russell Moore. And he's saying, yeah, I'm okay with, with Christians voting for any choice. Any choice. Between who? Well, that was between Trump and Hillary. Hillary Clinton, who was the most pro-abortion political presidential candidate in American history. Uh, th these are the people that Russell Moore associates himself with. And then now in a deleted tweet, Thomas Kidd said that he wished Trump did not oppose abortion because it would have made sort of it would have made a, a, a greater point. Like the fact that he was pro-life made it harder for him to tell conservatives to not vote for him. And he deleted that tweet. These are the people Russell Moore associates himself with. Okay, just so you know. What about J.D. Greer? Um, well, J.D. Greer was the, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. So huge, right? And a pastor. 
I just forgot the state. Uh, he's a mega pastor as well. And he told Christian Post in May of 2019, here's what he said. If at the end of the day, you look at it and feel like whoever the Democratic candidate is, you feel like all of the different things, that, that between all the different things, that that is the better of the options, well, that's great. That's what he said. He said, if, it, if you look at who the Democrat candidate is and you feel like that of all the different things, that they're the better option, well, that's great. It's the Tim Keller line. That's great if your conscience makes you feel like you can vote for pro-abortion Democrats who lynch our neighbors in the womb. Uh, J.D. Greer also refused to put a pro-abortion small group leader under church discipline. I did my research on this. I, I can find no comment from J.D. Greer. I can find no corrective action or public statement by his church in response to someone who went through their discipleship program and was a small group leader at the church, therefore responsible for the discipling of other people in that small group. Her, her name is Rebe Rebecca Schrader. Okay, we have a screenshot here of her, of her admitting that she's involved in Summit Church. That's right. J.D. Greer's church is called Summit Church. Rebecca Schrader is a member of Summit Church for, for nine years. She's a leader of a small group, former volunteer at Summit Kids, and adopted through the mentorship program. She says in this tweet that, she, that that's who she is. So this is someone very involved in the church, someone that J.D. Greer would know personally. We have some tweets here from her, okay, from what she said about abortion, just so you understand how heinous this, this, this is coming from someone under uh, a position of church leadership. And again, I can find no corrective action that's been taken by the church or J.D. Greer. To my understanding, she's still at the church and in a position of influence. She says, I think I'm going to sign up to be an escort at Planned Parenthood. Yeah, I'm pro-life, but have you heard what my people shout at these women? I had a friend abort a wanted non-viable pregnancy in a Planned Parenthood and was called a murderer and told she was going to hell. I want to protect her. So she uses this, like, the, the, the minority of people who scream these nasty things at an abortion clinic, uses that to paint all sidewalk counselors and says, therefore, I'm going to be an escort at Planned Parenthood. Here's another tweet. She says, friendly reminder, in Jewish law, a fetus attains the status of a full person only at birth. 83% don't believe abortion should be illegal. Right, so she's saying 17% believe that it should be legal. Maybe that will clear up Ruth Bader Ginsburg's stance on abortion. So she's saying, yeah, unborn babies aren't persons, you know, until birth. So, you know, that's just great. I'm a Christian. Here's another tweet. She says, so excuse me if I hear the simplistic abolish abortion from men who don't get pregnant or women who have only had healthy pregnancies as complete BS. There are so many complicated situations like mine, like that you would, you would pray would never experience or watch a loved one experience. So what, she, what argument is she making here? Sometimes that some pregnancies are complex and there's dangerous situations. And sometimes you just got to kill the baby. That's, you know, you just got to do that. Um, and then when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, uh, this woman, uh, Rebecca Schrader, tweeted this out. She said, she gave so much. She made so many lives better. The future is dimmer due to her absence. No, the future is brighter due to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, particularly brighter for the unborn children that she wanted to lynch through partial birth abortion after Amy Coney Barrett took her place, and in which, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, will be attributed to the replacement of Ruth Bader Ginsburg with a conservative. So actually, the future looks a lot brighter for small children and pre-born women because Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and we got a conservative to replace her, Rebecca Schrader. She gave so much. She made so many lives better. No, while the Supreme Court justice, she voted to, to overturn the ban on partial birth abortions. Now, it wasn't successful. We ended up keeping the ban on partial birth abortions. And last week, you heard my episode, right, uh, on the history of partial birth abortions and how 
Katanji Brown Jackson, Biden's new Supreme Court nominee, her complicity in that procedure, which I described in gruesome detail on the show. Ruth Bader Ginsburg tried to vote in a Supreme Court decision to reverse the ban on partial birth abortions. Uh, okay, th so that's why the future actually looks much brighter, Rebecca Schrader. And lastly, she says, can someone please explain to me why hashtag evangelical Twitter is railing against RBG after death because of all the murdered babies when she didn't join the court until the 90s and after Roe v. Wade was decided? Right, because of the decision where she wanted to continue lynching babies through partial birth abortion who are partially delivered. That would be why, Rebecca Schrader. So we, I have found no evidence of corrective action taken by J.D. Greer, and it doesn't surprise me because he told the Christian Post in 2019, if at the end of the day you feel good about voting for pro-abortion Democrats, well, I think that's just great. There you go. He wears pro-life like sheep's clothing to hide the wolf inside. Two more, Eugene Cho. Eugene Cho is the founder and former senior pastor of Quest Church in Seattle, Washington for 18 years. He stepped down just recently. He's a big church, Quest Church. He's the president and CEO of Bread for the World, a nonpartisan Christian advocacy organization. And he's the founder of One Day's Wages, a grassroots movement of people to alleviate extreme global poverty. Except Eugene Cho is a radical Democrat, so of course, alleviating poverty and loving the poor for him does not mean financial sacrifices of the individual private individual. No, it means big government programs so that Democrats can pretend to be compassionate by raising up taxes and then saying they're compassionate by redistrib redistributing the incomes of middle class people and then allegedly helping those through a big uh, government programs that often incentivize fatherlessness and incentivize um not getting a career through through government handouts. That That's compassionate for Eugene Cho. But Eugene Cho is pro-abortion. Many people don't know this. He's pro-abortion. Um, we, uh, we have, I, I think we have a, a screenshot here. If not, you can go to Eugene Cho's website. Um, but he, he believes that he's pro-life, but we need to keep abortion legal. So he's even worse than, you know, than Tim Keller and others who might say they want abortion illegal. Here's what Eugene Cho said. Like most Christians I know, I am against abortion. However, I just do not believe we can legislate it. Without going into all the details, the, the layers over abortion are so complex that even after extensive research, I can't understand how a country like the U.S. can enforce abortion and pay for the enforcement if it were to be turned illegal. Furthermore, I think we are fooling ourselves if we think abortion rates will be reduced significantly if Roe v. Wade is overturned. By the way, we know that it will be because did you know before Roe v. Wade, the median annual average of abortions was 98,000? And then two years later, after its legalization, the totals were 1.6 million a year. So clearly law influences behavior, doesn't it? He says, I can certainly be wrong. Rather than legislating it, I wonder how abortions can be reduced by speaking and appealing to the heart and soul of a person. Well, not to the soul of preborn children, though, of course. He just means the mothers. And to make all necessary provisions if a person decides to have that baby. In short, says Eugene Cho, in short, can we maintain choice? but do all that we can to preserve and ensure the life of an unborn, maintain choice, he uses the euphemisms of the culture of death. He doesn't say maintain genocide, maintain abortion, maintain baby murdering. He says maintain choice and do all that we can to preserve the life of an unborn. He doesn't even call it a person, a human, a baby. He calls it an unborn, an unborn, not a person or a baby. So this, this pro-choice pastor literally is pro-abortion, but don't worry, he's wearing pro-life as a sheep's clothing. And lastly, guys, uh, Rick Warren, okay? Rick Warren, yes, I'm going to go there, okay? Rick Warren, the senior pastor of the largest church in California called Saddleback Church, the largest church in California, one of the largest in the country, 
right, who, who loved to rub shoulders with Obama, who prayed over Obama when he became president, though I think the spirit of Obama had more of an impact on Rick Warren than the spirit of Christ had on Obama, because I'm not sure that Rick Warren is actually serving the prenatal spirit of Christ who entered human history in a uterus to redeem mankind from their sins. By the way, Rick Warren invited Obama to his church when he was still a senator in 2006 for a global summit on AIDS, an issue that, that he's been very passionate about. That's fine. The invitation was widely denounced by evangelicals because of Obama's support of abortion rights. Now, listen, I, I don't have a huge deal with bipartisanship on other things. Like if we can work with Democrats on like, let's say, you know, um, actually securing our border. I'll work with pro-abortion Democrats to actually secure our border. I don't have a problem per se with that type of bipartisanship, but it's disgusting because of course he never invited Trump to come speak on a pro-life summit to end the genocide of babies, but he'll invite pro-abortion then Senator Obama running for president um, for a global summit on AIDS because you know, that type of bipartisanship is very important, right? It's ridiculous. Um, at the, at a Thursday's news conference at the time, Obama recalled his visit and Obama said, I was invited to Rick Warren's church to speak despite his awareness that I held views that are entirely contrary to his when it came to gay and lesbian rights and issues like abortion. Nevertheless, I had an opportunity to speak. And that dialogue, I think is part of what my campaign is all about that. We're not going to agree on every single issue, but we have to do, but we have to do what we have to do is be able to create an atmosphere where we can disagree without being disagreeable and then focus on those things that we hold in common as Americans. But of course, Rick Warren never did that with Trump, the most pro-life president in American history, the only president to speak at the March for Life, who saved many pre-born children through his policies, um, because, oh, Rick Warren disagreed with Trump on many other things, right? Like he disagreed with Obama, but he looked past those to partner on AIDS. It's just, it's so indicative. But here's really the telling piece. This is a clip from a Pastor's Perspective episode um, that, that uh, Rick Warren joined with, uh, with Jim Daly, right? Jim Daly of, of, of Focus on the Family, um, as well as Brian, uh, Brian Brander, I always forget his last name, at, at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, um, the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. And they did this, um, this sort of Skype conversation uh, digitally because they're all too afraid to, to hang out in person because of COVID. Um, and they were responding to uh, President Biden's remarks after becoming president. So this was their Christian perspective on the new administration in January of 2021. Uh, and I think it's going to sort of give the game away. So let's play this clip. Here's an interesting fact. Jesus didn't seem to care what, what the political persuasion of his disciples were because he chose two exact opposites. He chose Matthew, who was uh, a dyed-in-the-wool a uh, big government guy. He was a tax collector for Rome. Okay, so he was he was a, a, a big government liberal kind of guy. And he says, by the way, Matthew, your partner is Simon the Zealot, who was committed to the overthrow of Rome. Those zealots carried daggers in their cloaks and would often assassinate uh, people if they could. So he puts a dyed-in-the-wool conservative with a dyed-in-the-wool uh, liberal on his team. Yeah. <laughs> okay, when you get to heaven, Jesus isn't going to say, how did you vote in 2020? He, he, he might say, how did you treat people you disagreed with? So there it is. So politics means nothing. It doesn't matter to God at all. It just love your neighbor. 
politics is not a way to love neighbor, by the way, says Rick Warren. There, there's no way you could possibly love your neighbor through politics. Like, I don't know, like getting super political by, by reforming the Republican Party to have more of a spine and getting more godly men and women elected into the Republican Party in order to end the genocide of babies through abortion. Yeah, yeah, you can't love your neighbor through politics. God doesn't care about politics at all. Of course, you know, all these people kind of love each other, right? Tim Keller, Russell Moore, Ed Stetzer, Rick Warren, right? So there you go. So Warren is saying Jesus picked conservatives and liberals as his disciples to join his team. Jesus won't ask you what your political persuasion was when you get to heaven. He'll just ask you how you treated others, right? If you loved your neighbor. So, so he talks about Matthew, the disciple. He was a big government liberal, says Rick Warren. Simon the Zealot, he was committed to the overthrow of Rome. So he was probably like a far right-wing activist. And Jesus puts both of them on his team, therefore showing he doesn't care about politics. Except Matthew didn't continue being a tax collector, did he? He abandoned his former thinking and stopped being a tax collector. He abandoned evil and he embraced Christ to do good, right? So Rick Warren conflates the liberalism of Matthew to the full-scale embrace of genocide by today's liberals. Something tells me that if Matthew was embracing the genocide of innocent human beings, Jesus would have had some words for him if he was going to remain on his team, right? So he tries to reduce liberalism to just big government, whereas in today, liberalism in the Democrat Party means protecting the high sacrament of abortion, their high sacrament of murdering babies in the womb, Satan's sacrament, Satan's pride and joy. Okay, there's a big difference between sort of being a big liberal who likes some big government initiatives and then like lynching babies in the womb. Yeah, those aren't really the same, Rick Warren. And when you, when you, when you associate yourself with and empower the Democrat Party today, you are empowering abortion. You are protecting abortion. Like Tim Keller says, right, to pretend to not be political is to be political in 1850 because, there were, because the Democrat Party was the party of slavery. The Republican Party was committed to ending slavery. So you were either you were either helping your black brothers and sisters or you were harming them and being apolitical was actually harming them because to not be political is to be political. But of course, Rick Warren doesn't apply that type of thinking on abortion because like all of these other wolves in sheep's clothing, they just don't think that the genocide and the bloodshed of baby image bearers is concerning enough to advocate politically for their protection. Right. So so he says God doesn't care about your political persuasion or how you voted. No, I think actually if you vote for people who lynch your neighbors in the womb and you say that it's just not that big of a deal, I think you will be held accountable for that. I think our political actions mean something. Political actions don't become meaningless just because they're political actions. Political actions carry premises and moral assumptions, and those actually have consequences. But except today's political persuasions, Rick Warren, will either expand and support the institution of womb lynchings or it will work towards its abolition. In short, Rick Warren, you cannot tell your neighbor you love them, but that, but that it also should be legal to kill them. But you're saying that you can love your neighbor and vote to make it legal to kill them because you're saying God's not going to ask you how you voted. He doesn't care about that. He just wants you to love your neighbor. And I guess there's no way to love your neighbor through political action. Absolutely disgusting. By the way, Rick Warren's been very friendly with BLM stuff and the black square and systemic racism, but he's silent on the greatest example of systemic racism today, the genocide of babies in the womb, because the Democrat Party and Planned Parenthood kill more unarmed black lives every two weeks in the womb than the KKK lynched in a century. But once again, the blood of unborn children doesn't run deep enough or hot enough to warrant the concern of these wolves in sheep's clothing. Why? Because they're wolves and they like bloodshed, right? And they can profit off of it politically because boy, do they have a lot of Democrats who attend their church who tithe there. And if they were to start tearing down the high places of Satan's sacrament, then they might lose 50 to 60% of their tithing block which they're using 
for financial reasons. I think that's what we really know what's going on here. Last example of Rick Warren before we end the show today. Rick Warren sent an email to his staff on August 5th of 2021. So last summer, here's what he said. He pushes COVID and he, or he pushes the jab and he praises Ed Stetzer, who we already went over. He said, dear Saddleback family, this morning I woke up with a number of COVID symptoms. I'd had a very sore throat since Monday, so I'm quarantining myself. I may have been exposed to the virus after hugging hundreds of people this past weekend who were not wearing masks, right? Because masks are a magically protective talisman, right? That's why Leanna Wen, the former president of Planned Parenthood and a CNN chief medical advisor, said that they're nothing more than facial decorations, right? This weekend, I was ready to resume teaching my summer series through Nehemiah, planning to be at our Lake Forest campus on Saturday and at our South Bay campus on Sunday. But feeling ill, I texted Ed Stetzer today, and he's flying out to fill in for me. Yay, Ed Stetzer, right? Who says Francis Collins is such a wonderful man who chops off the boobs of 12-year-olds and tracks the homosexual activities of teenagers and funds the murder of babies to get their stem cells and chop them up in order to perform experiments. Ed Stetzer, yay, he's coming to preach at Saddleback. What a faithful brother, right? Kind of shows you the, the people that Rick Warren trusts to fill in his pulpit, right? I'm sure you know that a new wave of the Delta variant is surging through America because the Delta variant is more contagious. Many of the most populated counties in California have reintroduced mask requirements. The COVID pandemic is now a pandemic of those who were still unvaccinated. Well, that's been true, false. Fake news, fake news, misinformation, Rick Warren. The, the vaccine doesn't prevent uh, transmission or infection, doesn't prevent infection or transmission. So uh, yeah, so that's not, that's fake news. The vaccine is your best protection, he says, even though no vaccine has ever been 100% protective. And he gives the current numbers of Orange County, okay? He says, the most important thing you and your family can do to shorten this pandemic and keep everyone safe is to get vaccinated and wear a mask. Denying reality will not make it go away. That's right, Rick Warren. Denying the reality uh, that the vaccine is effective it's not effective. We'll not make it go away. It is not effective. We all know that now. They've all admitted that. But you see these people, they, they just repeat the talking points of crazy pro-abortion, follow the science uh, bigots. Uh, and so they've just become tools for the secular progressive religion. And then here's what he says. He says, so please, so please, vax and mask, vax and mask, vax and mask, vax and mask, exclamation points. He says it four times. The way Rick Warren signs his letter to his staff is get jabbed and wear a face diaper. We're, we, we, forget the Bible verses of we all with unveiled faces, you know, seeing the glory of God, right? Forget all of that. Mask the kids, mask your children, mask yourselves, and get vaccinated. He says right now it's the loving thing to do. That's that Ed Setzer line, right? If you love your neighbor, you have to get jabbed. Think of others, he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. The great commandment. Pray for me as I pray for you. <laughs> pray for me as I jab you. Pray for me as I destroy your emotional health, right? <laughs> because uh, your children haven't seen uh, anyone's face for, for months and they've been at home and they are and their IQs, new study showed IQ of, of children born during COVID is like 20 points lower than the last several decades because they're not experiencing how to interact with people, you know, by facial cues, uh, tone of voice, smiles. They're not learning how to experience the world and interact with others. And Rick Warren just thinks that that's such a great thing. So you don't love your neighbor, according to Rick Warren and Ed Stetzer, if you don't get a jab that was um, tested and in some cases developed with aborted baby cell lines. And if you have a moral conscience and you don't want to raid the bodies of unborn children whose dead cells are being used in a vaccine, then you don't love your neighbor, says Ed Stetzer, who fills in for Rick Warren, says Rick Warren when Rick Warren can't preach. You don't love, you're a bad Christian, actually. You're a bad Christian. Um, I want to read this line from John Harris as, as the last part of this show today. 
John Harris has a wonderful podcast called Con uh, Conversations That Matter. You should go subscribe to it. If I'm sort of the, the watchman blowing the trumpet on pro-life, John Harris is the watchman blowing the trumpet on social justice, critical social justice theory in the church, okay? Wonderful man, wonderful podcast. Go listen to it. He responds to people like Rick Warren and Ed Stetzer who say, love your neighbor and get the jab. And if you don't get the jab, you don't love your neighbor and you're a bad Christian. I think John Harris sums up the response um, to Rick Warren perfectly here as, as we finish this episode. Share this episode, okay? These, these shepherds who became wolves for political purposes. While they say Christian nationalism is so bad, Christian Republicans are so bad who support Trump, yet they push the political theories and policies and, and, uh, and uh, priorities of the left wing uh, of American politics. And then it's not Christian nationalism. It's not bad. They just love their neighbor, but right-wing Christians hate their neighbors and they're bad Christians. I think this is the best response by John Harris. He says, I'm, I'm trying to love my neighbor by not getting the shot. <laughs> Here's my reasoning. If the shot is both detrimental to my long-term health and the occasion by which tyranny is forced on my friends in the business and medical fields, my resistance to it can, can only help myself and my neighbors. Here are my concerns. One, there's a question as to whether the shot contributes to infertility and in females. Right, you don't hear that from Rick Warren and Ed Stetzer, right? What's our first, by the way, what's the first commandment in scripture? Be fruitful and multiply. But Rick Warren will say, the great commandment, love your neighbor. Therefore, if you don't get the jab, you don't love your neighbor. Oh, you want to talk about great commandments? What's the first commandment, Rick Warren? Be fruitful and multiply. And you're pushing a jab that's now been shown to cause infertility in women and less eggs, therefore less fertility, therefore less fulfilling the first great commandment. Oh, bad Christian, Rick Warren. Bad Christian Ed Stetzer helping people, helping people disobey and therefore not obey the first mandate to have dominion and have children. But, but of course, they're not going to apply that, right? <laughs> it makes me so sick. Okay. He says, it's not loving to my future children to risk harming them or contributing to their death. Two, there's a question as to whether the mRNA technology weakens the immune system in the event of a variation of the virus attacking the body. I'm not loving the people who rely on me by taking a risk that may prevent me from working or kill me. Three, my friends who are in danger of having the shot forced on them are facing manipulative peer pressure right now. One of the metrics used to convince them to take the shot is the percentage of people who have taken it already. I don't want to contribute to that number. Four, there are many other concerns, including the ethics associated with the pharmaceutical companies manufacturing the shots, right, with dead baby aborted cell lines, and the political agenda behind potentially forcing the shots. I do not agree with using cell lines from aborted fetuses or the government imposing an untested shot on such a large scale. In short, the risk associated with contracting COVID or a COVID variant, especially for my demographic, are relatively low. The risks associated with the shot are relatively unknown, though, and that's the best case scenario. I believe it's more loving for me to not take the shot. I also believe it's not very loving for others to question my motives, Rick Warren, for making this choice based on risk assessment. Accusing people of being selfish or unloving because they won't take the shot assumes they believe the shot is necessary to save others, and yet knowing this, they refuse to take it. It's either an arrogant or an ignorant assumption, and not a very loving one, if you're failing to attempt to understand or respect their conscience. And all of these wolves in sheep clothing who all have pushed the vaccine, especially Ed Stetzer, Rick Warren, um, and, uh, and Russell Moore in particular, have had Francis Collins on their podcast, have said, Ed Stetzer, Rick Warren, and Russell Moore have all said they're good friends with Francis Collins. They love him as a brother, and, they want, and they're so grateful for the work he does. And they've all used their platforms to bring Francis Collins on to push what is now, is now evident 
is is misinformation and, and fake news. You know, what's the difference between a conspiracy theory and the truth about six to nine months, right? Everything that was labeled fake news conspiracy theorists, now the left wing has admitted was true when we said it six to nine months ago. Um, and, and yet, so, but they, these are the people who have been pushing this aborted baby cell line vaccine, have said it's a blessing of liberty, has said you're a bad Christian who don't love your neighbor if you don't get it. Well, I think John Harris perfectly sort of summarizes actually why you're not loving your neighbor by taking the shot. And his reasons are incredibly persuasive, clear, and, uh, and, I, and I think true. And, and yet to assume that you don't love your neighbor and you're a bad Christian by not getting the shot is, as John Harris says, is to assume that they believe the shot is necessary to save others and yet refuse to do it because that's just how much they hate their neighbors. Disgusting. And so all of these people, the, the common thread between all of these wolves in sheep's clothing, guys, is that they all either encourage voting for Democrats, they are registered Democrats, they give a platform for to pro-abortion people to spout their bigotry, even if they don't talk about abortion, but they talk about other things like Francis Collins, who's done horrible attacks on pre-born children and unborn children, um, or they provide spiritual license for their flock to vote for and empower the only political party responsible for the legalization of abortion today, the Democrat Party, who believes the same thing in 2022 that they did in 1850, that not all humans are persons, and the humans that they call non-persons can also be property of other individuals, property of the plantation owner in 1850, and property of their mother in the womb for babies today in 2022. It's just a new class of victims that they've called non-persons and used euphemisms to dehumanize and justify their mistreatment. In each case, though, those victim classes were image bearers of God. They were our neighbor, and we had a spiritual obligation to love and care for them. You're right, Rick Warren. You're right, Ed Stetzer. We do need to love our neighbor, but the only neighbor, it's currently legal to murder our pre-born children, and we should vote with our Bibles at the ballot box to end the greatest genocide in human history. But don't worry, all of these wolves in sheep clothing will tell you that they would have been abolitionists, that they would have been involved in the Republican Party in 1850 in order to love their black neighbors who were being treated as property because the Republican Party was the only party that could end slavery in the first place. But they don't grant that same acknowledgement to the imperfect Republican Party today that presents the church in America an opportunity when godly men and women rise up and begin contending in the political sphere to end this genocide. And he says, no, you're bad Christians and you don't love your neighbor. These shepherds became wolves and they need to be called out as wolves by the American church and need to be held to account. We need the, the New Testament uh, Pauline approach to these alleged brothers call out their sin privately. When they don't repent, bring a few more. When they don't repent, bring it before the whole church. When they don't repent, treat them as a pagan and a tax collector. These people are apathetic towards and complicit in the sacrament of Satan, his pride and joy, and the abortion sacrament of the Democrat Party today. And I think that their unequal application of their moral premises to that vaccine, to slavery, and their failure to apply those same commandments to love neighbors to preborn children today gives away the game, doesn't it? It proves that they're not possessed, to quote Hadley Arcs, of a lively sense that there are real human beings getting killed in these surgeries. Because if they were, they would not be acting in the way they are and empowering the only individuals and party responsible for lynching their neighbors in the, in the womb. Ironically, the location in which their savior entered human history, 
the savior that they're saying they're obeying by obeying their second greatest commandment, right? That savior became a zygote, a fetus, and an embryo to save you from your sins. While you allow the slaughter of children being knit together by that prenatal God in the same location that your savior entered human history in, to which I say, Bleh, throw up, vomit. And unfortunately, I'm afraid that those who tolerate and participate in and push Satan's sacrament may be told those fearful words in Revelation. You are neither hot nor cold, so I will vomit you out of my mouth. Well, share this episode with people who like some of these pastors. Take them out to coffee. Go through these details. Have a conversation with them. We need to hold these men to account. Thanks for joining the show today. Head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Give the show a rating and review. We really appreciate it. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, head over to SethGruber.com to my website to see my speaking schedule. So sign up for my newsletter or to book me for an event soon as my schedule is filling up quickly. Thank you for supporting the show, guys. Thank you for listening. Thank you for standing for life. It means more to me than you know. And we are trying to build as many coalitions as we can of, of the church who will stand up in the culture of death for life. This podcast is my humble contribution towards that ends. Thank you for joining with me in this great fight. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Unaborted. <laughs>